Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you happen to have. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. That's right. It's now a 30-day free trial. That's twice as long as the old free trial. Go get some classics of world literature like Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy or Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky or how about Dante's Divine Comedy. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. That's nice. I enjoy that. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is uncensored. This is hopefully going to go viral. Thank you for being here. Thank you for wearing your headphones. Thank you for listening to this while driving. Are you driving? Is that what's happening? Are you walking? Are you on a Segway? I always imagine my listeners in motion. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, I, I tend to visualize them doing things and, and moving around while listening to this show, which then makes me wonder, uh, do any of you just sit there like in the old days in front of your stereo systems and, and just do, and just listen and that's it? Uh, like as if you were listening to one of the old like Franklin Roosevelt fireside chats. And uh, of course, in saying that, I don't mean to compare myself in any way to Franklin Roosevelt uh, or to compare this podcast to a quote unquote fireside chat. Uh, what I'm saying is it was a different time. And I suspect that my show, more often than not, uh, is probably part of a multitasking situation, as just about everything is in the modern world. Uh, it sort of seems quaint and almost freakish to imagine human beings sitting Indian style in front of a radio or a stereo speaker and doing nothing but listening. Because uh, nowadays people don't even watch television without simultaneously surfing the web 
which uh, when you stop for a moment and ponder that seems somewhat extreme. But uh, back in the old days, back when books uh, were still at or near the center of the culture and radio was ascendant uh, or one of the dominant entertainment mediums, if not the dominant entertainment medium, not only did people sit and listen to their radios, uh, they actually looked at their radios while they were listening. Uh, And we've all seen those pictures uh, of like a whole family sitting around the radio watching the radio. And so I guess what I'm saying is, uh, I wonder if that ever happens anymore. And I wonder, uh, do any of you guys ever listen to this show while sitting completely still and uh, possibly Indian style while looking directly at your stereo or your iPod? Anyway, uh, I've got some mail here. I haven't read any mail in a while, and I figured I would read some because I've been getting a lot of mail lately. Uh, I got a lot of nice notes this past week uh, after the interview went up over at the New York Daily News. So uh, that was nice, and uh, that will hopefully help to get the word out about the program a little bit. Thank you to Sarah Langs over at the New York Daily News for talking to me, and thank you, everybody, uh, who sent me uh, emails. Uh, Thank you for that. I appreciate the good wishes. So before we get rolling with today's program, I thought I would read you uh, one of the nicer messages that I got recently. It came to me via email from the East Coast. So here goes. Hi, Brad. I'm a huge fan. Listening to the podcast always makes me feel good. Uh, Just so you have an idea of who your audience is, I'm 67 years old, and my 31-year-old son, or one of his friends, I'm not sure, turned me on to you. I was born and raised in New York City, spent 25 years in Los Angeles, married to a television writer and producer, with several novels in print, and I retired to a dirt road in the middle of the New Hampshire woods. I only read nonfiction, which may explain the divorce. Bottom line, I relate to the writer's angst stuff and the L.A. stuff and your ironically detached sense of humor, and I thank you for doing this. A big virtual hug, Donna. So, thanks, Donna. Uh, That is awfully sweet. That makes me feel good to read that, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate Uh, the kindness, and uh, how much I appreciate you listening. I really do. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Lydia Yuknovich. Very excited to have her here on the program. It's a big thrill. She has written several books, one of which is called The Chronology of Water, uh, a terrific memoir Uh, that came out a couple of years ago from Hawthorne Books to great acclaim. She has written some very fine short story collections as well, and now she has a novel out. It is called Dora, a Head Case, and uh, it too is available from the fine people at Hawthorne Books. 
So uh, what do you say? Let's get this thing going. Here I am talking to the wonderful Lydia Yuknovich. I am in Portland, Oregon, in what I have made into my writing room, which first I made as a diorama, a little box, like how I wanted my writing room to be when I was still poor. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I when I had a little bit more of a life, I, I made this room exactly like I had made it out of cardboard first. You actually created a model. Yes. Wow. My father, my father was an architect, and he used to make, you know, all those little architectural models. And I think as a kid, that really captured my imagination somehow, those little shrunken versions of things. And so I retained this real desire to make stuff like that. And uh, when I was first trying to be a writer, I really wanted a space that was, you know, dedicated and ritualized and... I couldn't have one because there was no, you know, the closet was a room. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I made one, like a little art project. And I'm, I'm completely serious when I say almost every detail I'm sitting in my room right now looking at. It's almost exactly the same. That's so interesting. And, you know, like, I, I mean, just beyond like the familial, uh, you know, like this kind of like uh, skill or interest that was sort of passed along to you. What, like, what immediately comes to mind for me is uh, the idea that, like, if you take the time and energy to actually um, plan and to kind of envision and, and, and actually like, create the thing and set that intention like that concretely, that somehow uh, it has a stronger likelihood of manifesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like if you build it, they will come. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's, it's more cool because I know what I was doing. I was trying to imagine something into being, you know. It was something I really wanted, and I wanted to be a writer too, and you know how hard it is to just stand up and say, I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I wanted to create it. Um, you know, make it true through art. And uh, somehow that really helped me to like make a visual of my fantasy. And I'm, like I said, I even painted it this weird, depressing, dark midnight blue that nobody but me likes. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, the walls, like the, the walls are, are midnight blue. Yeah. So it's, that... it's almost like it's a little bit sort of underwater or, or night. Um, <laughs> Well, cave-ish. Yeah, I was going to say cave-ish. It's got to be dark in there. Do you have windows and light, or is it a situation where <laughs> it's just walls? <laughs> it sounds kind of pathetic, doesn't it? I have windows. I have windows with these sort of wonderful Marguerite Duras, like floor-to-ceiling white curtains. And I do have some light, but when I turn the light on, it just immediately gets absorbed, and the ceiling's dark, which... <laughs> Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> it is awesome. Yeah. So and and so and this is in your home or is it like some sort of like above the garage type thing? <laughs> it's a bomb shelter in the back. It's in my home. It's the front room of the house. It's it's um and other people come into it, but I don't think anybody likes being in here as much as I do. <laughs> but you know what? That's sort of a brilliant strategy if you want to have some solitude to write. You got to make the room as unappealing to everybody else as possible, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, congratulations on the new novel. Uh, you must be excited to see it roll out. I'm thrilled, but of course, I'm also sort of terrified. Um, 
it's such a spooky thing to, I mean, with the second you're done writing something, it, it kind of stops being yours, in my opinion, anyway. You sort of release it, and it's it's not really yours anymore. Um, but there's a moment of sort of sheer terror where you have no idea if your act of writing will make a bridge to the act of reading. Or, you know, people are just going to pick it up and hate it and throw it against the wall. Right. And uh, I try not to think too much about it. I try to just go to the next project and the next page. But there really is a terror zone there. Um, and I'm not even talking about, like, success or money or any of that. Just just a moment of, oh, my God, readers will have this in their hands is a little bit scary to me still. Well, yeah, and then, like, okay, so is it is there any element of it where, like, you consider your creative works – uh, like your children somehow or something and like to see them go off into the world. Like I use that, I, I hear that analogy used and I've used it myself in the past, but like maybe that's a bit too precious and extreme. Like, what do you think of that? Like, is there any element yeah, of that for you? I hear that all the time too. And um, I don't identify with that idea. They don't, they don't feel like that to me, but I, I don't have traditional feelings about um, having children in the first place. <laughs> How so? How so? Um, well, I never had the uh, famous lady biological clock thing. Somebody had to argue me into having a child. Uh, my answer was no, 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 no. Um, I didn't feel it physically as an urge or a pull. I was positive I'd be crappy at motherhood, like the world's worst mother, so I was scared of it. <laughs> um, it turns out I think it's, you know, of course, one of the most amazing experiences of my life, probably the most amazing, but I didn't have the traditional feelings about it. So, so I don't have those feelings about books. Um, it feels more like, here's a more appropriate way to describe it for me. It feels like you are cutting off a couple of your appendages, like an arm and a leg, <laughs> and you are leaving them on a dirt road and you know, hopefully you'll grow new ones and hopefully somebody will pick those up and find some use. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a such a pleasant way of thinking of it, just the severing of limbs, you know. That's it does. It feels, it's it's like rather than a child, for example, it just feels more like a part of me to me and then I cut it off. And even though that sounds violent or gross, that's what it feels like. And then it's not mine anymore. And like I said, I hopefully grow new ones. <laughs> <laughs> you keep your fingers crossed and just, you know, like pray for luck, essentially. Yeah, I'm the one good hand. <laughs> so uh, how did you come to writing? Like, how did you get into this racket? Like, what, where, you can you have, a, do you have like an origin story that you can uh, summarize? Or do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have a really strong sense I of do. how it all happened? Yeah. I mean, I'm not one of those people who started writing as a kid or, you know, always knew they wanted to be a writer. I did start drawing when I was little in transgressive ways. I was a kid who drew on walls and tables and things like that, um, grocery store floors and the walls at school. And I I ate a lot of paper as a kid. <laughs> There's actually a term for it. It's called tika when kids eat non-nutritive stuff like dirt or rocks or sticks or paper. So I had that, but that was the closest I got to 
feeling like writerly things when I was a kid. Um, so, so wait, can we can we rewind for a second? What do you call the thing where you eat inanimate objects? <laughs> <laughs> really sad. <laughs> um, it's called pika. It's a condition. Um, you know, all kids kind of experiment with eating paste or mud or something. Right. But but I ate like kind of a lot of particularly paper and dirt. <laughs> Someday I'm going to write more about this when I stop being embarrassed about it. Um, and it was coming from, you know, a little kid trauma place. Um, but I also think it was kind of creative, you know, to just reject what was around me and and get some kind of satisfaction out of eating little pieces of paper. Right. Um, but um, my my sort of writerly self didn't get born until much later in my life. And I'll try not to make this sound too sad, but I had a really big sad thing happen when I was a young adult, and that was that my daughter died. And um, one of the reactions I had when I was kind of in the psychosis of grief was... Um, I filled up pages and pages and pages, kind of like Ted Kaczynski size writing, just really scary notebooks full of what I'm sure appeared to other people to look like gibberish. Um, and it was, it was kind of crazy writing because that's where I was and that's what I was feeling. But like 680 pages of this stuff. And um, when I kind of came out of my grief, and started being able to function and be in the world again, it's like I, I couldn't stop it. It was like writing had started coming out of me, and when I got my wits back, I had the desire to kind of, you know, have a relationship with it. So, so it came out of a kind of scary, sad place, but after that, it's been, you know, it's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> the thing that has saved me from fear and sadness and, you know, the idea of self-expression is part of the reason I'm still around. So even though it came from kind of a dark place, I know it's depressing, so sorry about that, but no, it kind of came from a dark place, but it, it's, it's moved into, it's moved into pure creativity and transformation. And, you know, it's the power of keeping oneself alive. Um, so it's, and now I'm starting to sound all magical and juju. That's not how I mean it. I mean it, you know, in brutally honest terms, it brought my life back to me. Well, and I think, but I, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, grief is often the point of origin for a lot of writers. I, I think that's common. I think so too. You yeah. Know, I think, I mean, that was definitely the case for me, you know, and I think it was kind of like cumulative, you know, it wasn't one huge instance necessarily, um, that I could point right. to, but I mean, it was like, you know, it was a uh, multiple deaths and just considering that. And then I don't know what it is like working against it in the only way that you know how, I mean, right. you know, what are you going to do? I mean, especially when something is awful as what happened to you happens. It's like, what are you left with? You know, you have a notebook and <laughs> I mean, makes, I, makes, yeah, perfect, makes yeah. perfect sense to me. Well, and um, I mean, I think a thing that artist people have in common. So the downside is we're often kind of outcast <laughs> or a little bit alienated as people. But the upside is that we're often people who are capable of, you know, going underwater in ways other people aren't as capable. 
and bringing something back, which is a story or a painting or a song or whatever. And, you know, that's a helpful thing. That's for culture. We're helpful humans. Yeah, well, let's hope so, right? <laughs> At our best, we are. <laughs> but that's a nice... I mean, yeah, like we're, we're, also, we're also creepy sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, that can happen too. I, I, I'm trying to keep the percentages and you know uh, tilted towards helpful. <laughs> yeah, I'm like yeah, I'm, I'm sixty forty, sixty percent helpful, forty percent creepy. <laughs> I feel like that's a victory. Um, so- well, you know that's funny though. Like my first writing, my first short stories when I was younger, they really did have a kind of poke you in the eye impulse, um, and I was mad. I was working out some rage and some, you know. And and I wasn't thinking of the reader as someone you could be in a long-term relationship with. Um, so they were all about alienation and, and a little bit hostile. They were one-night um, one stand relationship with your reader, essentially. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And I was, you know, kind of proud of that. I, <laughs> I think there's a place for um, that. I think there's a place for that, though, that kind of writing. I mean, I, if if we're talking about the I same thing, you know, like I think they're like sometimes writing with that kind of energy in it. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's right for a reader, uh, who happens to pick it up at the right moment. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I totally agree with that. Uh, and then one of the things, a couple of things that I want to, um, ask you about relative to what we were just discussing is, uh, first of all, you mentioned, uh, a phrase that just like rang out in my head, which was the psychosis of grief, which I think is actually quite lovely, um, uh, because, uh, it, it gets to something about, uh, grieving that like, isn't as you know, often expressed or not as artfully, there really is like a psychosis to it. Like it, it, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, there's a heaviness to it and a, and a craziness to it. And then yes. secondly, uh, is that notebook with the 650 pages of, uh, Ted Kaczynski writing? Like, do you still have that? I do. I mean, have you looked at I it? Have, have, have you looked at it with perspective and like, can you make sense of it or does it just seem like gibberish to you now? It doesn't seem like gibberish um, at all to me, although it's lacking things like syntax and grammar and diction. (laughs) Uh, But it's a little more like painting with writing, if that makes any sense. Um, Are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm getting deep sunlight. The pages are more material than you know, when we're trying to make a poem or a story. And um, usually when I look at it, it makes me sad. But then this cool thing happened, which is, um, I think it was like a year or two years ago, a new book came out of Jung's writing during a period of time when he kind of lost his marbles. It's called The Red Book. It's really cool. It's it's more than 12 inches high and it's a, you know, big, like, coffee table art-sized book. And it's filled with all this writing and painting and drawing that he did when he was, you know, certifiable, when he was in a period of having a breakdown. You're talking about and Carl, when I, Carl Jung? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And first of all, as an art object, I mean, I highly recommend everybody go out and get one. It's so beautiful. Um, but it's it's really weird. <laughs> The writing is just, again, you know, just layers of this territory of the psyche and, you know, not rational, not not reasoned out argumentation, but just like a psyche let loose or something. 
And when I saw that book and when I owned that book, I felt like, whoa, I'm in excellent company. <laughs> I was going to say, you're like, I, I sense a coffee table book in your future. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that, so now I think, like, now I want to teach a class with other people on creating a book like this, where you just, you know, you let go of logic and reason and see what comes out. Now I think everybody should write these kind of books. <laughs> I mean, is it, but is it like, what is the reading experience like? I mean, is it something that you can actually sit down with for a long period of time? Or is it something that like a coffee table book you sort of flip through? Um, no, it's more, it's more reflective and super dense. Like if you were reading the Odyssey or, you know, it's kind of like that or Joyce, um, you know, big, thick tomes of very dense writing. Um, and it's not, it's not gibberishy. It's just incredibly dense and layered and you kind of have to leave your, your regular life and, and sort of go there to read stuff like this. Um, and it's a little bit crazy, but it's a wonderful crazy. <laughs> right. It's the kind of book you read in a room with midnight blue walls. and you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to ask you, I want to ask you about swimming because I know that you're a swimmer and I know that, uh, you know, in, uh, the chronology of water, you know, that's obviously figures, uh, into that book. And it's a big, you part. noticed that. Yeah. It's a big part. It's a big part of the cover. It's a big part of your <laughs> life. Like I've talked to writers on this program before, um, who are runners. Uh, I don't know if I've talked to a swimmer before, but I'm assuming that the, the activity performs a similar function in terms of like, uh, you know, obviously like maintaining good health or whatever, but also, uh, mood regulation and, yes. you know, sort of like it has like a kind of synergistic re uh, relationship with your creative life and it's, it's necessary. And I'm, I'm assuming that's the case, but I, you know, I'd be interested to hear you talk about it. Yeah. I've talked to runners too. And they talk about, you know, runners high and the sort of Zen place that running occupies in their life and how they need it in those ways. And, um, but also addictions to running that interests me too. It, it is a lot like that. I think, one of the main differences with swimming, though, is this quality of being weightless in water. Um, that's a that's an important difference because the only other time you feel that in your life is when you're in the womb or maybe in space, which I've never been to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, this weird weightless quality where water is... You know, surrounding your entire body, and um, it sort of it sort of tricks you for a little while there, and puts you in this space um, of not quite human. You know, more like fish or animal, and and maybe more like where we came from or something. And I'm not again, I'm not meaning to sound make swimming sound all metaphysical, but um, there really is something specifically about the body and its weightlessness, and also that you could drown or float. That's always interested me, but it's, it's both dangerous and, you know, loving or caressing and it could change in an instant. And that, that's a big deal to me, but just in terms of the similarity to runners. Yeah. I think we, there's a, there's a high, there's a Zen, there's a pushing your body to certain kinds of limits. There's also, you know, the way running and swimming, uh, let you let go of intensities or tensions or, rage or, um, you know, in the form of energy that I think is huge. I mean, if I could get everybody in the pool, I would, but that's kind of weird. 
So <laughs> that'd be, and it would, and not, not, to, not to mention crowded. It could just get messy. Yeah. Need a little space. And somebody, somebody would somebody would pee. <laughs> almost, almost certainly, especially among writers, it would <laughs> have to happen. Uh, yeah. But so, in terms of uh, you know your background as a swimmer, you were a competitive swimmer. Oh yeah. And so I think I started competing when I was about six. Okay, and you were good. Yeah. Like you, you want. I mean, I didn't. I didn't mean to be good. I didn't have a. <laughs> I didn't have a history of swimmer people in my family or anything, and right. I didn't know anything about it. And I didn't. You know, it just suddenly I was good at this thing. And people were nice to me. And it was, what it really was, was a safe place to be outside my home. And I could be away from home a lot with a kind of interesting tribe of half-naked people. (laughs) And, you know, get kind of identity reinforcement in a positive way rather than a creepy, scary home life way. So your home life when you were a child was, was rough? Yeah. And, it wasn't pretty. Oh, like lots of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and swimming provided solace and, and kind of an escape. And then, like, uh, I would assume some good friendships and stuff growing up. Absolutely. It was weird, too, though, because it's a competitive sport. And I cared so little about that part. Um, again, I wasn't I wasn't a, an athlete by choice, and I didn't care very much about winning, which is sort of problematic. <laughs> um I mean, I got a rush from competing, but I didn't have the, um, you know, the tiger's eye. I never had that. I believe it's called the the eye of the tiger, you mean? Yes, there's a special song. (laughs) Yes, there is. (laughs) Um, Which, by the way, my son sings in the shower, so. Does he really? (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. He's 11. (laughs) So, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about like your, your lack of desire to win, um, or your lack of interest, you know, like it was obviously fun to like be in a race or whatever, but when you lost a race, assuming that this happened, um, you know, if you lost a competitive swimming race, were you upset with yourself in any way? I was not on just on my own, but my father was really horrible about shaming me. And so I just began to associate it with a rather archetypal classic father shame moment. Every time I lost, he would um, take me in a room alone and shame me. And so it just turned into that. And um, and the creepy thing was, here's what a jerk he was. When I won, he would also pull me aside and shame me by saying something like this. Um, oh, you think now you're special? Because oh, you won, so I was sort of screwed, whether I won or lost. Because he, you know, I had a sadist for a father. So you see how winning and losing kind of lost their moorings as what they really were, and just turned into this other thing. Um, and so that's when I just started feeling like being in the water and being with other swimmers was this whole other thing, and I I just stopped even caring what the competitor part was about yeah i can see that and then like uh it was i mean it also must have had like a strong emotional component just like what you were talking about if you're dealing with that kind of heaviness uh at home and then you're in the water like you're probably working stuff out i mean it just it seems like it would be kind of a oh yeah you know the just the physical 
the strenuous physical activity. And like, I should say too, that like, I, cause I, I never swam competitively or anything, but I remember the swimming team at my high school or the swim team. And, uh, we had a really good one. And I just remember how dedicated those people were. Like they were in the pool at six in the morning and it's like, a, right. it's a re, it's like wrestling too. Like those two sports seem to be particularly intense in terms of what they demand from you. I know. I sometimes I can't believe I did it as long as I did. We would swim six to eight a.m. and four to six p.m. and we would also do Nautilus weights for an hour before the four to six p.m. and we took one day off a week, which was Sunday, and I did that until I was like twenty-one. My God! And that just bob the bottles. My if I try to get up early two days in a row now, I'm like dead meat. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. You know what's interesting? I, I like I've got as I've gotten a little older. Like I used to be able to like go on these insane stretches where I would get up at four thirty or five and work, and you know, and and I find that like you know if I don't get good rest, it, you know, I can do, oh yeah, I can do it for like a little bit, but it just it doesn't work. You know, like I, I have to. Get, I do. I have to get some sleep. Have to. Me too. I'm actually, I oversleep. I love sleep. I think because I didn't get any when I was growing up because <laughs> I was swimming. Right. <laughs> I'm making up. I'm making up for it now. I love sleep. I love the bed. I love naps. I love waking up late. It's kind like, of a sloth. When you get a good night, like when I get a really good night, cause I have a young daughter, she's like uh, two years old. So we've, we're coming out of like, uh, you know, the period where exhaustion, yeah, yeah, like, like the kind of the cocoon of like uh, exhaustion or whatever. And so now, when I get uh, a really, and I'm not a good sleeper to begin with, like I, you know, I have uh, some insomnia issues sometimes. So like, you know, when I get a good night of sleep, it's like the greatest victory ever. I love it. I know, I know, small victories. <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll take what I can get. Um, so with regard to swimming and, uh, your work now, like how does it figure into your daily life now? And like, is it something like you work and then you swim or you have to swim before you sit down at the desk or, you know, do you have like a ritual that's really concrete or is it just something that you do when you can? Um, a little bit, it's, uh, sporadic, but, um, I, it's a thing I do before writing and it's completely like meditating, only with an added beauty of physical release. So when I'm done swimming, I'm emptied out of all the bumblebees and physical and emotional and psychological crap that you sort of carry with you. Um, I don't carry that with me onto the page because swimming pretty much drains you. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not a bad idea to wear yourself out physically, you know. But it, it works. It, it works. I, 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 the total and I, I have one. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I do the same exact thing. I don't swim, but I mean I do other exercises for the exact same reason and feel the, the similar benefit. Well, you know, uh, writers and lots and lots of artists and scientists and people who are in their heads too much, it's crowded in there. And, you know, if we don't do something to have a little pressure valve and release some of that shit, it just gets in your way of trying to make anything decent art-wise. Um, it's my personal opinion about that. Um, so if I don't have some mechanism for releasing crap, then God knows what would happen on the page. <laughs> well, no, and it's interesting, you know, especially considering your work, there's like such a um, kind of like a rawness and a vitality to your writing, and there's an unguardedness. Uh, you know, I hope I'm using uh, accurate adjectives, but like, how do you, I'm interested to know, like how, when you sit down to work, 
you approach it. Like I, I, let me, let me tell you how I imagine it. And you can tell me if I'm anywhere near close to, uh, the truth, but I imagine that like when you, you know, you go, you go and you swim and then you go into your, uh, your, your writer cave (laughs) and and you sit down and you know, you're, you're clear. Like you said, you've emptied out all the bumblebees and you've gotten like your headspace, um, you know, situated so that you're ready to write. And then I imagine you actually working once you get going quickly and, uh, or relatively quickly and without a whole lot of, uh, backspacing and self-criticism. I don't know. It feels like it comes out of you in a rush, or maybe that's just the illusion of how it reads. Um, with the exception of the fact that you forgot to mention alcohol, (laughs) it is, it does. I'm one of those writers who writes in like four or five hour chunks and it does come out in a rush. Uh, which is not to say that I don't revise and edit. I do. Um, but yeah, it comes out in kind of a gush or a rush or waterfalls and a little bit frenzied, maybe a little crazy, you know, the first round. Um, but I feel like that that is such an important process move like mode. Um, because my killer is when I'm thinking too much, and it just kills the energy and momentum of what I'm trying to make. Because um, once I get the Lydia think too much brain going, it's like a hamster. It's horrible. It's, you know, I think rethink every sentence and every image. And I can't, I can't write like that. So I have to be kind of emptied out and all portals open and just, yeah, like a rush, like you said. It is like that. It and is like that. It's also, it's also scary. It is. <laughs> Like, like, I mean, it's, it's a scary. To, to see what's coming out of you, like, oh my God. Yeah. Yes, actually. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'll try to avoid scatological terms, but yes. Yeah. Well, no. Um, and, but that's the thing that that makes sense to me. And, and then, uh, you know, uh, you have to be brave, you know, like uh, there's some, I think brave is a word that a lot of people would probably use to describe uh, your work as well. Like you say a lot of things that people think and don't say, which I think is, you know, close to uh, a a short definition of the function of a writer here. I think that's what you're supposed to be doing, but it's not easy to do. And and I think there's a certain courage in your work in that regard. Like, you know, you're you're willing to uh, talk about things that are impolitic or things that, um, you know, uh, bodily fluids, you know, scatological terms, whatever the case, like you'll go right there. And uh, you'll do it artfully, but I think that even, uh, you know, gifted artists and gifted writers will sometimes shy away from that stuff. And it feels like you are able to sort of gin yourself up and prepare yourself to, um, permit yourself to do that, you know? Yeah. It's so important to me. I like how you're talking about this. It really resonates with me. Um, in my heart, what I, what I feel like I'm up to is, and I've said this before in other places, I'm trying to get close to a writing that's of our bodily experiences in the world, but our whole life, our whole cultural experiences to not think about your life that way. You know, you got to smell nice and have a car and drink lattes and have a job and be a good citizen and all this kind of consumer culture selves we walk around with. And I would like to to write in a way that gets closer and closer to our 
real bodies in the world. So there's there's that. That's meaningful to me. That's what I'm trying to do. And I often call that corporeal writing, you know, like of the body. Yeah. But then the other the other thing is, and this is gonna be a gender sounding thing. <laughs> uh, women and kind of minority populations are really dis- discouraged from from writing the way I write quite often. And what I mean by discouraged is, I mean, I'm still in indie press world, but I've often talked to larger commercial publishers and they tell me what I'd have to do to my writing to get it to fly at the you know higher level of commercially successful. And what I'd have to do to my writing to get there, you know, whose writing would that be? Right. <laughs> you wouldn't no, even I... look like anything I do. <laughs> I think that's for shit. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't know a ton about the business of publishing, so they very well might be telling you the truth, but it sounds silly to me, you know, and it definitely, Isn't it just absurd? It's sad, yeah. Well, and it definitely, I mean, in my head I was going, no, don't do it, Lydia. <laughs> you know, like, oh, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you just, you can't, you can't go there and you can't try to, uh, kind of shoehorn yourself into somebody else's idea of what will sell. That's, that's never going to work. And I, frankly, I think that like, there's a, you know, there's clearly uh, an audience out there and a readership out there that's hungry for this kind of writing and for somebody who will, will go there and for some, for a woman who will go there and, and who has the, uh, the, the ability to, you know, to lay it down like that. Yeah, I hope so. And plus the writers I've adored and the artists I've adored have been kind of that way too. So I know there's a space for it. Um, but it's hard too, you know. I've literally been offered kind of a big chunk of money to to edit an essay, for example, or even a whole manuscript, and you know, take out the explicit violence or the explicit sexuality or these kinds of, you know, the things you're imagining. <laughs> and uh, the, you know, money's large. Money's hard to hard to pass up. Um, and then you think too, like, well, and then I'd have this huge audience, so more people would get my work, and that's good, right? And um, but maybe because I was always in the um, underdog place, I, it's valuable to me to burrow underneath too. You know, it, it, there's room for all of us, and I guess I'm okay being one of the burrow underneath. <laughs> Well, and you might just be, I mean, you never know how things will shift and you never know how sensibility is. That's true. You know, like there could be, there could be a time in the not so distant future when, and, and you know, the other thing too, and I hate to sound so uh, callous about it, but it sort of seems like as soon as like uh, a memoir or a work of fiction that, um, you know, uses language in the ways that we're talking about, as soon as one of those breaks out, suddenly it will be like, of course we do this. Totally. Uh, yeah, and it'll be commodified and famous, and yeah, yeah, it's y- true. You know. So, um, speaking of famous, uh, I want to talk. <laughs> I want to talk about your writing group. I'm fascinated with this writing oh, group because it's the Titans. The it Titans. Is. It's an amazing writing group. I mean, it truly is. It's like the Algonquin Roundtable of Portland, Oregon. I mean, for God's sake. I know. Uh, but you know, I've. You know, specifically, I mean, we'll talk about like the. I mean, it's it's Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, yourself, Cheryl Strayed, and then like, you know, I'm forgetting other names, but I mean, those three right there, th- those are some pretty heavyweight writers these days, right? Huge. And Chelsea Kane, the thriller writer, and Monica Drake, who wrote Clown Girl, and 
uh, Susie Vitelli. I mean, I can name everyone in our group, or maybe I can email them to you. But they're all just astonishing and amazing writers. But yeah, a four four of them or so are huge. So how did this thing get huge? How did this yeah? How did this <laughs> thing get started? And like what? And then I want you to. Uh, you know, kind of briefly take me into one of the, the meetings of this group and like what it's, you know, I guess you guys are probably just sharing pages and talking about them. But, um, you know, I, I have like a vision of it in my mind involving, um, you know, I don't know, soft lighting and fire. <laughs> a fire. <laughs> you know. We sit in a pitch black room. <laughs> no, it's like skull and bones. You're all in robes. Like, yeah. what's, what's happening here? <laughs> Um, well, the workshop was begun by um, people like Chuck and Monica had been in Tom Spandauer's Dangerous Writing Workshops years and years ago, and they used that as a model for both what we literally do process-wise, which I'll tell you in a second, and also some of the terminology used for how to talk to each other about work. Um, so that's how it got born. To this day, I have no idea why Chuck invited me in in an email, and he still won't tell me like where that idea came from or why that happened. So that was just one of those, you know, I got an email one day. I'm like, what? <laughs> he, he had, what he, do you mean? <laughs> well, he had read you somewhere clearly, right? Well, he says he did, yeah. Sometimes he tells stories. I don't know. <laughs> but he said he did. Um, and it just happened to be a a really perfect time in my life where I was feeling the most alienated and kind of stuck inside a novel project I couldn't extract myself from. So it was perfect timing. I got invited in. I've told this little story before, but the first night of workshop, um, I went early and I parked near it so that I could spy on them and watch them arrive because I was really nervous, um, like really nervous, like anxiety attack nervous. And I had um, had a cheeseburger <laughs> from Carl's Jr. and some little bird watching binoculars. And I watched them all arrive. Oh my <laughs> god! This is the most fantastic story I think I've ever heard. What the stopper? Uh, no, but the Carl's Jr. hamburger or cheeseburger really sort of like I don't know why that. Ad- so it makes it. It adds so much. It's- and the bird watching binoculars. So you're watching people arrive. Can you talk about how they arrived? Did anyone make a grand entrance or was it all fairly basic? <laughs> people they were all pretty, they were getting out of their cars and walking into this building where it was. I did notice, however, that they were extremely attractive. So that also concerned me. <laughs> and several of them were really tall. So that concerned me as well. Um, and then I managed to get Carl Jr.'s burger all over my chest. And Chuck had told them all that I had big tits. And so, <laughs> like... Do you? So what I did, when I, yeah. And so when I went in, I had this black coat on, and I had to button it all the way up to my chin because I'd spilled Carl's Jr. all over my rack. And I didn't take my coat off the whole time. And I remember wondering why everyone was staring at my chin, <laughs> like, trying to see. Like they want they're going to yeah. see the ketchup. They're going to see the ketchup stains. They're watching me. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Chelsea's like, we were all trying to see if you had a big bitchin' rat. I told you. <laughs> I'm like, that's awesome. Wow. That's great. So, that is, you know, why be nervous? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, once you heard that, you knew everything was going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but process-wise, we, about four or five people bring work a night. 
and we have time for about each person to bring in about seven or so pages. And you pass your work out, and you read it right there, and you get your comments, verbal and written, right there. And then you give your work back. You give the work back to the author, so they always leave with their own work. Um, so it's sort of present tense workshopping. You don't go away and think about it, or we don't get the work early and ruminate on it. It's kind of feedback right there. Um, so that's what we do process-wise. But there are no robes. But you, there are, I'm disappointed that there are no robes, but I'm excited by the idea that you read uh, right there because yep. I've done workshops before, and I think that when you give people pages to take home, uh, if there's a time lag, sometimes like the freshness of thought is gone, and then also yes. you never know if they're actually reading, and a lot of people in workshop won't. So it's like if you all have to sit there with the pages in your hands, you know you're going to get a read, and I think there's probably – uh, you know, I know, I mean, there's obviously some value, but I think there might even be more value in getting someone's immediate take as opposed to, uh, letting them stew with it. I mean, uh, you know, yeah, I've come to really, really value it. I mean, one downside is I'm a kind of slow, methodical plotting thinker and I'm not a speed thinker. You know what I mean? And I, I don't talk fast. I don't think fast. And I tend to reflect on things. So I've really had to get used to, you know, being able to bring your comments right away to the front of the experience. And I'm good at it now, but when I first started, I, you know, there wasn't time to reflect. And I just thought, oh, shit, I'm just slow-witted. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, um, it's a skill. I've, I've had this conversation before. Like being, you're essentially uh, functioning as an editor at that point or giving editorial feedback. And, you know, you can be a brilliant writer and be a really shitty editor. And, yeah. you know, I think that it's something that can be learned and, you know, you can obviously improve at it, but, uh, you do have people who are really gifted at both, but you know, it's, it's not something that, um, is easy to be good at. And no. so I'm curious it, to know if there's anybody in the group that, you know, are, are there people in the group who are just exceptional at giving notes or, or is everybody pretty much on the level there? You know, I mean, I'm, it's not, it sounds smarmy when I say this, but I think everybody there is excellent at it. And the reason they're good, from my point of view, is um, we all do a slightly different kind of writing. You know, Chelsea's a, thrill, Chelsea's a thriller writer, and I write kind of high literary. And Chuck writes more transgressive. And, you know, we all write so differently from one another that that gives them different eyes on your work than your own. And so everybody's comments kind of fill all your blind spots because they're not you and they don't write like you. Right, right. And I, can, I just find that so huge. I think it might be one of the secrets to why our group is good for everyone is that we aren't writing the same stuff. I feel like there should be, a, I feel like there should be a documentary made about this group. I feel like it needs to happen. We, Yes, Monica and I both want this to happen. We want to call it Right Club. Yeah, right. There you go. You've got the title. It's done. But, but it's, we it's, can't we can't talk anyone into it because they're also you know it's an organism or a relationship. So all kind of funky dramas happen too. You can imagine. Oh sure, sure. I mean, is there any, like I mean, is it, but I mean, it's a, it's generally congenial. Like everybody loves each. Oh other. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. So, but sometimes, I mean, like, do you ever have, I mean, I guess like with any workshop, if the work isn't registering or people disagree about the work, there are going to be debates. And um, yes. 
and moments where someone has to run into the bathroom and cry or takes off and screeching tires. <laughs> that stuff happens too, but in the end, we're really there for one reason, and we want to help each other be better writers and kind of knock it out of the park. So that sort of trumps everything else. But we're also human, you know. We act weird sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but like you can't argue with the success. Like, you know, the group is putting out good books, you know, and and, and there's uh, publishing success happening. Like, I think that whatever you're doing, it's working, you know. I mean, if the, if, you're, if you're gauging it by those kinds of uh, metrics or whatever, you know. I do. I do. I was doing an event with Chuck really recently, and he got an audience question and part of his answer was about our writing group. And he said, you know, more than half of us make a good chunk of our living just from being writers. And I was up on stage with him and I think I masked it well, but I started crying when he said that because of how large that sentence is. <laughs> you know, that we've, we've kind of made it not as rich people. We're not all rich people. Some of them are rich, others aren't. But that we can be writers and stand up and say, that's what I do in my life. Um, but I sucked it up real quick because we were on stage, so nobody yeah. saw me. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it was, a, it was an, a, a power cry. It lasted about 2.5 yeah. seconds. Exactly. Uh, but you know what? That, like what you say, though, that, that is a, that's an amazing thing. And to, like just that alone, the mathematics of that and the statistical unlikelihood of ever being able to say that because it's so yes. it's so difficult to make a living writing uh books yes. so every day yes to have that many people in the same writing group having you know, to have uh, done that like i wonder if there's a writing group in the country or even the world that could say the same thing i wonder you know like where else is that happening i think there's something very unique yeah i guess i think it is too i mean and you know i i try really hard too to be a good citizen of the workshop and not fart or do anything terrible because I don't want to get kicked out. Right. you got to behave yourself. You've got a good thing going here. I know. It's a good thing I'm on prescription medication. <laughs> <laughs> what, kind of, what, kind of meds are, what kind of meds are we on here? Oh, I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> Just the kind that make your, your day less jagged. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. And like, do you, and you, and, and don't have, or do have an effect on the writing? I mean, do you know, like, does you feel like that has any impact or is it simply just like regulatory and normalizing? It's re it's regulatory. I mean, everybody knows, um, I'm on Vicodin cause I have a scoliosis issue and, um, so I'm not Rush Limbaugh or anything, but <laughs> I worried when I, <laughs> I worried when I first started taking it, that it would ruin my writing or, you know, make me too loopy or too aggressive or something. Um, but really it's all just sort of regulatory and I'm 49. And if I need pharmaceutical help to make my days okay, so that I, and so I can sleep at night and, you know, write during the day, then it's okay with me if I do that. The rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're dealing with like legitimate, <laughs> legitimate medical issues, I mean, you know, like I, I don't think there's, yes, they are legitimate medical issues. There you go. I swear. <laughs> So, uh, have you lived in the Pacific Northwest your whole life? Is that like your, your turf? On and off. I mean, I had parts of my life where I lived, I've actually lived quite a few places, Massachusetts and New York and Florida and Ohio and California and Texas and Washington. But 
but I've always come, I grew up in the Northwest and I've always come back and cumulatively I've lived here the most number of years. So I guess it is. Yeah. And at this point, you know, it does feel like it's in my body, um, the Northwest and it, it feels like I don't, I don't want to live anywhere else except we are exploring the possibility of a little bit of transcontinental, you know, part of a year here and part of a year there. Cause we recently took a trip to France and it stole our hearts. <laughs> it's pretty beautiful, huh? <laughs> oh, it's crazy. I can't even make words about it. It was so amazing. Where did you go? Like, what, like, are you thinking of like living part of the year in Paris or are you thinking South France or what, like, what is it? Par- Paris really got us. We'd both been there before, but all three of us went, my husband, Andy and my son, Miles and me, and something happened. It was, it, it just, everything went right. It was beautiful. And you know, Paris, if you've been there or even if you haven't, it's, it's so alive. It's its own East and um, and history right up against the new and um, so we're looking for a way to spend some more time in Paris. But we also were in this amazing rural farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere and um, near Bordeaux, um, and that was another extraordinary and transformational experience. Um, and I'm an isolate, so I love being alone. So I haven't been that blissed out in 20 years. <laughs> you know, right? Well, you were with your, but crazy. You, were, you were with your family though. Like it wasn't like you were; it was just you, correct? I was with my family. I was with my family, but the farmhouse was large, so we were often we're all three isolates, so we were often in different rooms, just really blissed out. And then we'd come together to eat or go canoeing or something. Um, we were just out of our gore. It was like we stepped into a novel or a dream or something. Um, and then then we came back <laughs> and then you're like shit i'm back here no, but, oh. no it makes, makes me no we love portland no but you know it, I, I get what you're driving at and i think like it's so it makes me envious just because i haven't gotten to travel in a long time but um yeah it's so yeah great. it's so great to travel where even you know I, I my wife and i always say like i go anywhere like i, I honestly would go just about anywhere like excluding maybe, yeah like, just for the travel just for the travel, you know, and just to see yeah. someplace new and like, just like, you know, I, I find it so incredibly stimulating to be someplace where I don't speak the language or where I don't know where I'm going or where it's completely brand new or, you know, like we, that can even be within the United States, but I especially enjoy it when it's a foreign country because, um, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I don't know if I can properly articulate what it is. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of the usual stuff. Um, but I feel like, or, or one of the things that I've said before is that you can learn so much in such a compressed amount of time by, yes. via one of those experiences. And in, in, you know, and not in like a really explicit way necessarily either. It's just, it's fully experiential and you just come back feeling full. Or yes. You know? Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And this too, I think, and yes, it's any travel. Um, your selfhood is instantly disassembled. And you have to reassemble it really fast with new shit, <laughs> like new language, new geography, new place, new people, like new food, new everything. And it's like, you know, snakes shed skins. It allows you that possibility to kind of reform yourself quickly and potently. And like you said, you feel full. Um, um, we had waited a long time to travel because my son was little and we kept thinking, well, we don't want to, you know, have that experience of dragging your kid around like a dog, you know, 
whining and peeing and complaining everywhere. So we waited till he was 11. And by the way, I highly recommend that. He was the perfect age. So we hadn't been anywhere for like more than a decade. And two days into it, I was like, my God, we have to travel more often. No, <laughs> for God. No, yeah. And you know what? Like whenever uh, my wife and I go somewhere, like the first day that we're there, especially again, if it's overseas somewhere, the first day that we're there, we, we spend almost the entire time thinking like, how can we live here? Like I, I could. Yeah. We can get a bike. Instantly. Can, this is the neighborhood. I know. I could see us in one of these apartments in Amsterdam, and it's very narrow, and that's perfect. You must change your life now. Right. Um, and even my son, Miles, was, you know, partway into the trip. He looks at us, and he goes, why haven't you people taken me traveling before? This is awesome. What's wrong with you? <laughs> like, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oops. Well, now you have something to now. Now you you know you can make up for it by trying to go, uh, you know, spend half the year out there or the summers out there or something. On it. That would be so cool. I would be very. I jealous. know. I would be. I would. Be, We're trying. I would be obsessed with your Facebook wall if that happens. I'd be looking at <laughs> looking at all your photos with bitter envy. We are busily plotting how to reroute our meager finances. You know, there's got to be a way. We can just not eat for a couple months. Well, you know, the thing is, is that, I mean, would you, I mean, uh, without, it's not really necessary to get too specific, but if it were like for a summer, for example, like you can, I mean, if you could rent out your place home at home and then you can get over there and find rent, like. I, th- I think we could do it. That's the thing. I mean, I think that like the logistics of it and just like the you know, kind of like the the brashness of, of taking that step is what stops people. But like the truth is that once you're over there and you're doing it, it's not that hard, you know? Like No, it isn't. You can it's just a it isn't. Like the hardest part is buying the plane ticket, you know? I do know that. And once you travel again you realize it was never hard. It's just the failure of our imaginations. We get stuck in our little rut lives and and we forget. Um but yeah, we're working on it. Trust me, it's not—it's not a joke. We're really working on it. That's a fun thing to work on too. You know, looking at like yeah. places and plotting adventures. Like that's—that's that's what life is for, I think, or largely. I love it, and it also reminds you that like your whole life's kind of like a novel, and you really do get to make chapters up. So you know, that's cool. Yeah. So make a good one. You know. Yeah. Yeah, don't make a sucky chapter. <laughs> yes, don't write a shitty novel for God's sakes. That's the point of that. So, what is uh, what is your plan? Like, you have like a book tour happening, and and are you doing any uh, traveling for the the rollout of Dora? Or is it- yeah, I'm just I'm just starting to set up some kind of minor travel. I'm not sure how much those events contribute to. I don't know what I think of um, book tours lately. I've been thinking a lot about them. But, yeah, I have some kind of closer-to-home events and some online things and um, and some fear, like I told you. <laughs> some, um, some what? But really, oh, some fear? Huh? Yeah, fear, like I said, fear about the reception or, you know. Um, the severed limbs but, on the road. <laughs> Yeah, severed limbs on the road. Um, but what always saves me is, you know, I'm already in the next project. So I was going to ask ha- that. I, ha- I was going to ask that. Like, you're already working on the next thing. Yeah, I think that's how we can save ourselves is to just you wrote one. Now, now move on. 
So, okay. Okay. So that like w- when you finish a project, the day you finished Dora, you, you slide away from the desk and you say, okay, that's it. Uh, you send it off to, um, your editor or your agent or whatever the case may be. The next morning, do you wake up and work or do you carve out any time explicitly for, uh, publicity or for, you know, self-marketing or whatever you need to do to push the book out into the world? I think it's kind of naive to think you you wouldn't have to carve out something along the lines of three to six months of, particularly for for indie authors in that we have to do so much of our own legwork um, and we have to, you know, do all facets. There's no publicity team. There's no commercial publisher. So you just have to do so much of the labor yourself. So, yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of carve out three to six months of bust your ass trying to pimp your ride, um, which I did. I did for Cal. For Cal, I did it for a year because I was so afraid no one would read it. But <laughs> just keep, just stay out there, lady. Stay out there, <laughs> or they're gonna forget who you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, though, is that um, like you say you carve out that time, but like I, I found. Uh, in my own experience, it's it's hard to know when to stop and to, to stop doing. I know. It, you know, like it's like because especially I do. You know, you want to keep pushing. You want to. You don't want to leave anything to chance, and you want to fight for your book. You know, like that's a very natural and I think healthy thing. But like at some point, you have. You don't to... want to gross people out either. Yeah, I mean, you know, like every time you're, you know, posting a link or whatever it is you're doing or emailing friends, it's like at some point it feels like overkill. Yeah. So, and I think I'm learning, I'm learning more about that. Um, and I think this round, I, I'm more sensitive to that. For example, with Cal, it was the first time I actually had any readers. So <laughs> I got really excited. I was going to say it's an astonishing experience. You know? <laughs> I know. It's like, oh my God, they exist. And I like how you call um, it, you're, you're referring to the color of water. I like how you call it cow. That's sort of charming. Yeah. It's it's even more charming than you think. It was Gertrude Stein's euphemism for having sex. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it was an was it so, an, was it an acronym? Yeah. I'm trying to think of what it would stand for. Is this some, is this something we should have our list, uh, my listeners like uh, look up on their own? Or, uh... They should look up. They should look up. The <laughs> <laughs> little adventure. Okay. Yeah. So are you? Um... So you're going to be doing your, uh, you know, your basic uh, three to yeah. six, three to six months of time. You're going to do some readings, and then you're already at, yeah. you're already at work on the next thing. Can you tell us what like you know what that is, or like give us a hint? I can't. It's um, I can tell you this. It's based on um, it's loosely based on a Joan of Arc story, um, but I've dislocated Joan of Arc from her historical period, kind of like Dora, and um, put her in a different space. Okay. It's a different story. This is all starting to congeal for me, Lydia. I'm starting to see it, like the France thing, the Joan of Arc. <laughs> I see what you're doing. I, well, I have to move to France. I'm doing this book. I can't properly write this unless I'm in France. See? Yeah, I have to buy a sword, too. I like the way you work. This is very shrewd of you. Um, but I'll tell you, it's been it's been great to talk to you. Um, you know, I've been oh, me too. admiring uh, from afar for a while now, so it's great to hear your voice. And I congratulate you on uh, the new novel, and I wish you all the best of luck with it. It's been my great, great pleasure to talk to you. And as I told you earlier, I'm a fan of yours as well. So mutual, mutual love society. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks so much. 
My pleasure. Okay, folks, there you have it. That is Lydia Yugnovich. Go get her books. Go get her novel. It is called Dora, a head case. It is available now from Hawthorne Books. You can find Lydia on the web at lydiayuknovich.net. She's also on the Facebook. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you want to read my tweets, the, uh, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, right now, what am I doing? I'm actually in kind of a hurry. My wife and I have plans to go to uh, some sort of jazz event over at LACMA, the local art museum here in Los Angeles. Uh, That sounds kind of bourgeois. That feels sort of adult and mature. I'm not sure if I can handle this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to go. I'm going to listen to some jazz uh, in the evening, sunlight, and I will probably drink uh, white wine. Is that acceptable? I can feel you judging me. Please remember that John Milton died of gout and that Edmund Wilson once punched Mary McCarthy in the face. Thank you for listening as always. I appreciate it. Uh, Subscribe to the program over at iTunes if you haven't done that already. It is free of charge. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I have nothing else to add. I am all out of energy. I am feeling slightly dehydrated. I have completely shot my wad. (laughs) 